morning. And happy Father's Day to those of you who fit that bill, wear that hat, whatever you want to say there. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll just state up front, my goal today is to look at the first 18 verses of chapter 10, which really will bring us to a transition point in the book, uh, finishing up the, uh, the argument, the presentation for the superior priesthood of Christ, which is that main second area, uh, really the probably, you could say, the big argument in the book of Hebrews. But, um, and then verse 19, we see a change. Okay, that's where it transitions really into the third uh, portion of the book, third section. So my goal is to try to look at these verses today, get this, and then spend next week kind of just pulling everything together, reviewing up to this point. I may, I've been trying to work on something, a game or a puzzle or something to use as the review, but uh, it's not going the best so far, but... Anyway, I might have something like that, okay? So, anyway, Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what I'd like to do this morning is um, we'll go ahead and have a word of prayer first, and then I want to read the last, well, verse 24 through 28 in chapter 9. We kind of covered, although hurriedly, those verses, but just because... Um, and then that will get us to the point of going into chapter 10, and I'd like for you all to read chapter 10, 1 through 18. We'll just stop at verse 18. All right, so let's have a word of prayer. I'll read those several verses in ending chapter 9, and then it, uh, Pastor, start verse 1 of chapter 10, and we'll just go around until we get through verse 18, okay? So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity this morning, and um, Father, as we... Uh, take this, uh, these few moments here this morning and look into this portion of your word. We pray you'd help us. Uh, this is, again, just a, uh, an awesome part of your word. It's, it's a serious uh, part of your word as well because of the subject of it. And, uh, Lord, we just uh, pray you'd help us to get uh, a proper grasp, understanding of what your word's teaching here. Help us, uh, Father, to have a better appreciation and love for you and the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, um, a, an appreciation for the salvation that we can have in Him. And uh, it's in His name we pray, and we also ask uh, for the still numbers of ones that are ill and continue to be so. We pray that you would just uh, work in their lives and uh, do, do a work that would bring about correctiveness and healing in their lives, we ask. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews 9, verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have suffered... For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him... Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again made of sins, every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not to thy body, hast thou prepared thee. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, hast thou no pleasure. 
Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we, will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once more. And every priest standeth daily ministering to the offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now the mission of these is there is no more offering of sin. All right. This portion that you all just read uh, here in chapter 10 is kind of the, uh, the climactic point, if you want to say. It's, it's the, the culmination of the argument presented in Hebrews, in, basically in chapters 5 through uh, verse 18 of chapter 10, arguing for the superior priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the book starts with laying out his superior person and then builds on that. Because he's the superior person, he can do a superior work as priest. Um, and, and that's foundational, right, to his priesthood. But now, you, you see, in this part... It, and, and this portion is kind of, I have a little bit of an outline here to put on the slide, but um, uh, this, is, this is like much of the book of Hebrews. It's hard to outline in the sense because it doesn't just go one, two, three. I mean, because everything's kind of, it just kind of keeps snowballing, building, but yet it just keeps rehashing a lot of the same things. They're brought into the argument maybe in different ways and just build upon and so on. But here, ultimately... We see here in chapter 10, we've seen that the argument for his priesthood began in chapter 7 by basically saying that his priesthood's better because he is a, and I'm going to word it this way, a forever priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right, which is different than the Levitical priest, right? They were temporary, but Christ is a Note it, remember the quote that it uses, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but you could, you could word it this way, this is the implication, he's a forever priest. He, he's always been, he is a priest, always, all right? And he's after the order of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek, he's a priest forever, all right? And then talks about the script, all right, or that new covenant that's brought into the picture and the argument that, you know, the Levitical system was based upon a, a covenant, and it's what's referred to in Hebrews as the Old Covenant, right? Covenant that God established with His people there at Mount Sinai. It included, you know, when He gave the Ten Commandments, and, and He laid out and then basically gave a lot more information to Moses on the mountain about the tabernacle and everything that was involved in that. And the gist of it is God said, okay, this is what... This is how things are going to operate, and you need to do this. And remember, the people's answer was, everything that the Lord said, we'll do. Now, then the question is, did they? And the big answer, of course, is no, they didn't. They, they failed miserably in that, and we would have as well. But so the point being is that covenant is has been now set aside because obviously and, and there was a purpose in it and basically the purpose was to show us that we need God's help, all right? We're not going to be able to continue, you know, do this on our own um, and we need God's help. We need His intervention and that's what the New Covenant's all about. Remember, it's introduced in the Old Testament and uh, really the, the prime passage there in Jeremiah 31 that calls it the New Covenant 
the, the, the content of it is referred to in a number of Old Testament passages, but in Jeremiah, the Lord uses the words, a new covenant I will make with you. All right, but remember, and we're going to see it referred to again here in chapter 10, but God basically said, I'm going to make a new covenant, and the basis of it is totally on what I do. It's not on what you do, which makes it a viable covenant, because if it was up to man, we would, we'd, we'd fail, right? But God will not fail. He does not fail, never has, and Christ is the one who has executed that new covenant, all right, through his priestly work. That he has done when he, of course, died, offered up his blood in heaven, and all that's involved in that, that establishes this new covenant. All right? He is the mediator of that covenant. Chapter 9 then brings in the idea, the emphasis on where Christ did his priestly work. He did it in the true tabernacle, the tabernacle in heaven, not the mere picture of that that was here on the earth. All right? And, and, of course, the temple, the permanent structure that Solomon first built and then was built again in the days of Zerubbabel. Yeah, Zerubbabel. That's what you need to name your son. Yeah. Uh, you're, you get excited and call him Zerubbabel. What are you? Anyway, forget that. Uh, sorry. I was just thinking, can you imagine their parents trying to and call on the roll, you know? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, but the temple that Zerubbabel was overseeing, building there in Haggai's day and so on, same, same thing, the same principle was carried on in the tabernacle and the temples, all right, and in a way was still in effect up through the time that the Lord Jesus was here on the earth in his earthly ministry, all right, and in a physical sense, it was still ongoing, when the book of Hebrews was written, which was after Christ's ministry, of course, after his ascension back to heaven, but Hebrews refers to it there as the priests are doing this. They're still doing it, but it's of no good, all right? That's the whole point. And remember, in chapter 9, there's a lot of emphasis on blood, on the blood of Christ. Now, when you think about it, when you think of the, 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 the tabernacle and all that was involved in it, Blood was a very significant thing that was involved in what went on with the tabernacle, both with, of course, the outside sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings and peace offerings, you know, all the offerings, but also with, of course, the Day of Atonement, which was the special thing uh, that the, the inside of the tabernacle had to do with, of course, the, the Holy of Holies there. And Christ's ministry took place in the real, the heavenly sanctuary, not the mere earthly sanctuary, which was, again, just a, a shadow, a picture of the real one. And so his priesthood, again, all of these are arguments that his priesthood is superior. Why would you want to continue is, is the idea uh, in following this, this vain, empty stuff because it's of no value. And we see that really driven home again here in chapter 10, where the focus then turns to the one, at, the one big element that hasn't really been, I mean, it's been mentioned, it's mentioned there pretty much at the end of chapter 9, which again makes the transition in chapter 10, but the sacrifice itself. You know, when you think of the Old Testament, sacrifice was a big, a big aspect of that Levitical system, and all the different sacrifices and so on, that there was specific purposes for each one of those, and there were different rituals that were involved in each one of those. None of them were exactly the same. There were different elements and so on. And, I mean, you think about that, in a way, that could be confusing, wouldn't it? I mean, I, you remember not long after they erected the tabernacle? Uh, I'm trying to, I can't think of the exact passage there, uh, but... Um, Something happened, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but Aaron's sons did something a little bit, not Nadab and Abihu with the strange fire, but, uh, but they, they didn't eat a particular offering at a particular time or something of that effect. I can't remember. Remember, Moses kind of got up in arms with Aaron about it, and Aaron said, well, you know, it just, and, and it's just like, okay, okay, okay. That's, you know, but it's kind of like, can you imagine trying to do all that? I mean, it would be difficult in a way, 
But all of those things had some kind of purpose in picturing, again, the whole point of what Christ would fulfill, but also they were meant to demonstrate that we can't do it on our own. We need God's help. And only God can do for us uh, what we're oftentimes trying to do. And so chapter 10, we see this sacrificial part of Christ's offering coming into the picture here. And again, Hebrews 9 ends with the verses basically culminating the fact that Christ's priesthood, He did what He did one time, and it was good for all time. And chapter 10 continues on with that, again, focusing on the sacrifice. For the law, the first, the first and again, this is kind of hard to outline in a way, but what did I do? But the, um, that's nine, I went backwards somehow. Anyway, chapter 10, the sacrifice of his priesthood, and if I had to put one description, it would be the one and only true offering for sin. Remember, all those offerings in the Old Testament, they had no real value. The only value to it was that if they did what God said, there's an element of faith involved in that. All right, They did what God said, and they had to trust God. That, there's faith in that, okay? God was always more concerned, by the way, with the heart that was involved in what they were doing than merely what they were doing. And we'll get to that here in chapter 10. But the one and only true offering for sin. And really, first of all, the first kind of like chapter, well, kind of like chapter 8 and chapter 9, and that it basically begins with, with throwing out the point that the old, and in this case, the old sacrifices, all of them, I mean, you know, there wasn't just one, there, all the stuff there, that it really was of no value. It, was, it, was, it didn't really accomplish anything of any spiritual eternal value. They were ritualistic only. And then moves on to the point that what Christ did fulfills all that, and it is complete and perfect and effective. And that's what we see in chapter 10. So the old sacrifices are talked about, again, predominantly here in the first 10 verses, lays those out, demonstrating that there was, they were imperfect. And the emphasis of what I mean by that, and I think what the emphasis of these verses is, with perfect, remember perf- perfection typically, and per- pretty much as it's used in the book of Hebrews, has the idea of completion, bringing something to an end, all right? And there was no end to them. They were imperfect because they had to continually keep doing it, keep repeating it. I mean, you think about that. It's just doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it never accomplished anything. It didn't accomplish anything. And that's, that's you think about that, that is very appropriate uh, as, a, as a comparison of many religions and the practices of many religions. It's just, it's empty because there's, what's it do when they do it? Nothing. And they just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. There's no real value in it. So the old sacrifice, the imperfection of the old sacrifice is basically the first three verses, all right? Uh, The sacrifices under the law were but shadowy images of the true sacrifice. Notice verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered and that's the that's the point of the question there at the beginning of chapter two if they had if they were able to do something they would have accomplished something and you wouldn't have to keep doing it but they they weren't they never did cease to be offered uh, in that context, because they didn't accomplish anything. It says, because the, that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin, of that. Conscience of sins, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Think about this. 
Remember on the Day of Atonement, all right, which took place once a year, but every year it had to take place, right? And remember part of that was uh, the priest, the high priest, uh, remember the, the second part of his going into the, into the Holy of Holies was involved goats, right? Two goats, two goats. One was killed and its blood was taken in and sprinkled on, on the mercy seat. But the second goat, anybody remember what that one was called? Scapegoat. Growing up, I remember my dad and, uh, you know, hearing that term, somebody being the scapegoat. You, what does that mean? I mean, they're, they're the ones that takes the blame for everybody else, right? Or for what happened or something like that. But that's what the scapegoat literally was. The priest had to put his hands on the head of that goat and confess the sins of the nation. Now, can you imagine having to do that and trying to make, you know, hopefully I got everything. I mean, but, but the point was, there was a remembrance made. Sin was never taken care of. Every year they had to rehash the sins because there was no real forgiveness in it. So they had to repeat it again. Well, we did this and we did this and we did this and this. And, and, and the idea was he was transferring the guilt of those sins onto that goat and then that goat was taken by a fit man and taken out into the wilderness into a desolate place and let go. And the, the picture there was, you know, the sins were being taken away. Now, of course, those sacrifices, they didn't really take them away. It was all ritualistic, ceremonial, and that's why they had to keep repeating it. It was pictures, all right? But when, what, as we'll see introduced here, what Christ did took care of it. There is real forgiveness in, uh, through Christ's sacrifice here. So you see the idea here of the old, in, in, imperfect, of the imperfection of the old sacrifices, the inadequacy of the old sacrifices. Again, they were imperfect. They had to continually be repeated, but they were inadequate because they never really accomplished anything. And that's partly why they had to be repeated, all right? But uh, verse 4, for it is not possible. I, I love the way this verse is worded. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. I mean, in reality, the blood of an animal, what value is it? It's of none. Again, it was all ritualistic and picturesque. It was meant to teach something, is the point. All right? There was no value, really, in the blood of those bulls and of those goats, and so on, and of course, those were the two animals that were involved in the Day of Atonement and their blood taken in and sprinkled. But verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, and of course he here is referring to Christ, Messiah, but to Christ he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The idea is, I come to do thy will of God, thy will, O God, and insert it in there, in the volume of the book it is written of me. The idea is, the volume of the book, the, the idea is throughout the whole thing, and the book here would be referring to the Old Testament. Throughout the whole Old Testament, it's predicting and referring to Christ. It's prophesying of Christ and what he would do. And um, in, okay, I got um, in these verses, you can see that the writer of Hebrews is referring back. He's quoting from Psalm 40, basically verses 6 through 8 here. And he presents it as, a, as and I don't want to say as if, but the way he's presenting it, these are words that Christ, the Son of God, would have uttered as he was being incarnated, as he was becoming man and then coming into this world. Because notice what it says, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, when he was coming into the world, he said, all right, 
sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. So the words, David was the psalmist in Psalm 40. And if you go back there and look, and we won't take the time to this morning because of time, but you can see, obviously, there's a, a psalm there. It speaks of God's merciful deliverance to him in the first part. And then uh, kind of in the middle there, 6 through 8, you see these verses. And then it goes on. Um, I would say obviously referring to things that Christ would do in his kingdom and so on after his coming. But, uh, but here Hebrews refers to it as these are words that Christ spoke as he was, again, beginning this earthly ministry. As he took on humanity and came to earth and entered human race, if you want to say. And, and I mean... Uh, it's interesting just the way it's presented here. Like, these are the words he spoke, and, you know, he's not even born yet, okay? But he's then, of course, born as a, as a babe and so on. But he's coming to do what, according to these verses? To do God's will, right? Now, there's two aspects of this. You're going to see this referred to several times in these, in these next several verses. His will, God's will, all right? In a general sense, it certainly refers to Christ, God the Son, doing the will of God the Father. Remember, especially John's gospel really emphasizes that, that in everything that he did here as a man, he did it in obedience to the Father's will through the enabling the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the exact example that we're to follow. We're to do God's will through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did that perfectly as a man. So in a general sense, it's obviously referring to that. In a very specific sense in this context, I believe that you can understand His will here as the new covenant. All right? Because He, he compares it to the old here in these verses and the idea is he came to execute God's will, yes, in a general sense, but in this specific context, he came to do what was necessary to execute the new covenant. And that's how the passage gets into here, all right? To do what was necessary for that. And notice that it says that a body was prepared for him, all right? Uh, obviously, he had to have a body to become the sacrifice for sins, right? He had to have a physical body that could be slain. I mean, again, this, this is, in a, in a way, when you start really start trying to think about this and rationalize this out, it becomes very difficult because we're talking about eternal God, God the Son, who became a man. That in itself is, is hard to really get your brain wrapped around on, so to speak, in a rat, human, rational way of thinking, because we're limited, all right? That's the point. We're limited. We can't comprehend but so much. And God is, you know, you think of Isaiah 55. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. I mean, we can't begin to comprehend God in, in his true essence, in reality, because we're limited. That's why God describes himself to us in the scriptures in ways that we can relate to. All right? But in reality, and I, I guess you could say when we get to heaven one day, we're hopefully going to get a true grasp of, of all of that. But that remains to be seen for us, all right? So he relates to us in ways that, you know, hopefully we can understand as humans, human terms and, and various things. But he says he was, there was a body prepared for him, again, so he could be the sacrifice. Now notice, <coughs> excuse me here, as the verse is going, he says, above, verse 8, above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, notice those are three specific of the five offerings mentioned in Leviticus, but in offerings for sin, thou wouldest not. That's not what God wanted, those Old Testament sacrifices. That's the idea. Neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. They didn't please God. Now, again, the point being is they you could say they pleased God in the sense, okay, if, if 
the people did exactly what God said to do, they were doing right because that's what God said to do. But the point here being made is they had no real value because they could never satisfy the demands of God's holiness concerning their sin. Something far more was needed than that. All right, that's the point that's being made here. All right, those sacrifices were, were imperfect and ineffective. Something else was needed, and the passage is introducing that to us through Christ and Him fulfilling this scripture. All right, uh, verse 9, Then said He, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Because His will, His pleasure, wasn't in those Old Testament sacrifices. He came to do what really would satisfy God, which, as we understand, is the giving of Himself, Him being the sacrifice, okay? Um, and, and again, notice in the, what I was talking about with the will being the idea of a, the, the second covenant here, right? He saith the first, he, I can't talk this morning, verse 9 there in the middle, he taketh away the first that he may establish the second, all right, that covenant. By the which will, now that's referring back to verse 9, and again, that second covenant, the new covenant being the will of God, okay? By, which, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you see here that a perfection, a sanctification comes. It is possible, but it's through what Jesus did, came to do, and not what the Old Testament was doing, not what the Levitical system was doing in the Old Testament. They never pleased God. In fact, in, in this, before we move on, um, it's, it's referred here to Psalm 40, which we've basically, again, verses 6 through 8. But turn back to Isaiah 53 for a second. Isaiah 53. I want, I want, instead of just having somebody read it, I would like for us all to look at it. Isaiah 53. There's some verses here that if you don't, look at them in the right context, they, they can seem very cruel, okay? I, I, I'm assuming that most everybody here is familiar with the general idea of Isaiah 53. It is a, an awesome prophetic passage in, you know, 750 years before Christ was here on the earth about how he would be the offering for sin and how he would take our place and, and so on. You're familiar with the verses right there in... Um, well, let me just begin reading in verse 1. Who hath, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up as a tender, before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor, com, nor comeliness, that when, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He is despised, and we esteemed him not. Verses 4 through 6 here, surely he hath borne our sorrows and borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, excuse me, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on, okay? But I'm just rehearsing these verses to refresh your mind with the passage, okay? And by the way, this is, this is a passage that the Jews to, to this day have a difficult time dealing with, obviously, all right? I mean, they, they have to go through all kinds of gymnastics, if you want to say, to, you know, even talk about this passage. Most of them won't even talk about it. But it's obviously a prophecy of Christ, okay? And, and you see the gist of the passage. Now look down in verse 10. This, these next couple of verses are what I wanted to point out. Yet it, what's the word? Pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When you read that, you think, man, that seems like God enjoyed punishing Christ. 
I don't really believe that's what it's talking about. The pleasure here is the idea of, the word is actually used in the next two verses, satisfaction. What he did pleased God in that he did what was necessary so that God can forgive sins. God, if Christ didn't do what he did, there's no way God could forgive sins. Unless he went against his own character, which he can't do. God is all-powerful, but he cannot do something that goes against, that compromises his character, who he is. And so it was necessary for Christ to do what he did so that God can demonstrate his love for mankind, but yet still be holy in doing so. Because the point is, Christ bore the full penalty for your sin, for my sin, for the sin of every person who's ever lived since Adam and that ever has yet to live. Christ bore the total penalty for those sins. He endured the wrath of God completely for everything. I, 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 and there's no way we can really comprehend that. But he did what was necessary to please God. It's not that God enjoyed punishing Christ, but God, it pleased God. God had pleasure in it because what he did. Now God can do what he wants to do for us because there's a just basis to do it. All right. In fact, notice verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be, what's that word? Satisfied. Again, it's not that, God's a, 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 a masochist and enjoys punishing and so on. I'm not sure if that's the exact right word to use in that situation. But the idea is he was satisfied with what Christ has done. Now God can do what his love desires to do because he has a just basis to do it. By his knowledge shall my righteousness shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Uh, again, this is this is. God's words toward what the, the Father's words toward what the Son did here, all right? And so you see the idea that of, of it pleasing God in that sense. Go back to Psalm 51 real quick, and I, I got to hurry here. But Psalm 51, you're familiar with that. We looked at that, I think, or maybe we didn't exactly, but this is, a, I think, the greatest example of confession, what genuine confession of sin is in the Bible. It's, of course, the example of David's confession of sin after the incident with Bathsheba and all that was involved with that. But uh, what a wonderful passage it is. Um, and, and just to get to my point here, I believe there's three elements that are involved in biblical confession in, in the big sense. One is, obviously, there, there has to be an acknowledging of guilt, all right, and owning up, all right, to the sin. There's secondly, I believe this involves the idea of repentance here as well, is there has to be a desire to be rid of that. In other words, you, you see that throughout here. David says, purge me with hyssop. Purge me with hyssop. I can't speak, but, uh, and I'll be clean. I'll be whiter than, you know, this kind of thing. In other words, he's not only saying, okay, yeah, I, I've really messed up and it's my fault. He's not blaming anybody else here. He's taking full ownership for what he did, but he expresses the desire to not have part of that anymore. He wants to be free of it. He doesn't want it to be, you know, doesn't want to be associated with it anymore. He wants to be rid of it. And then the third element, and I believe you see this beginning in verse 13 in Psalm 51, is there also has to be the element of trusting God that He will do what He said He will do and forgive. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot truly confess our sins if we don't believe He's really going to forgive us. And that, you know, and a lot of people get hung up on the idea of 
maybe you could word it this way, I think people would understand it this way today, is not being able to forgive themselves because they really feel like they messed up so bad, I can't ever forgive myself. Well, I'm not saying that we take that lightly, but the point is we have to get past that in the sense that we have to believe that God will take care of it the way he said he would take care of it. I mean, that, that's involved in, or we'll never get past it. That's the point. That's, that's the, like the final step. And in that, in the psalm, okay, because um, David, after he lays this out, notice he says in verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. That, Thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness, and so on. But then, down in verse 16, he says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. Now, keep this in its historical context. This is David, 1000 B.C., roughly, uttering these words. He's acknowledging that God had no real pleasure in those burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says, if I knew that really is what pleased God, I would do it. Else I would give them, right? But he says, then the sacrifices of God or the, what God is looking for in an individual. Okay, now it was still in the economy, if you want to say, in the system. It was still appropriate for them to bring the sacrifices as they were supposed to in that Levitical system. But what God was really looking for was the heart. And... As long as they had, a, as David says here, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a, and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. That's what pleases God. Even in that Old Testament economy, when a sinner sinned, sure, there was stuff, you know, ritualistically that was to be done because of what it pictured. But the whole point was God was looking for the heart to be changed. And it's the same thing true today. Even though Christ's sacrifice has been completed from our historical perspective now, it's done. It's not going to happen again. When you sin, there's not going to be another sacrifice made for sin. can't happen. But the point is, God wants a broken heart. It's, it's the heart that, that God looks at. And I, I even jotted this down, 1 Kings 21, verse 25 and following. That's that incident where Ahab, it's after the Naboth in the vineyard, remember that? And, and God sent a prophet, I can't remember if it was Elijah right there or not, but anyway, he confronted, uh, it was Elijah, confronted uh, Ahab over that, told him, okay, God's going to cut off all your family, your seed, and all of this stuff. And, and Ahab was a wicked king. In fact, in his introduction... In 1 Kings 17, or I think it's at the end of 16, I can't remember, but uh, it, it tells us that Ahab was more wicked than any king up to his point, at least. I mean, good guy, right? But, but in that particular instance, it says that Ahab humbled himself, covered himself with sackcloth, took off his, his royal clothes, put on sackcloth, which was a, a, if you want to say, an outward show of a mourning heart. And he went softly. Now, Ahab didn't really change in the big picture of his life because not too many verses after that's recorded, it, 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 he states that he hates Micaiah, the prophet. All right? I hate him because he, he just speaks God's word to me. But, but my point being, God sent word to Elijah and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to show some mercy to Ahab and not execute all of this in his day, I'll do it in his son's day, because he humbled himself before me. I mean, I'm just saying that's the power of a humble, repentant heart before God. It's not outward acts of, okay, I'll make it up to you, God, because there's no way you can make it up to God. But it's the heart that God's interested in. All right, and i got to hurry. So you see in verses 11 through 18, back in Hebrews chapter 10, you see in verses 11 through 18, you see the one sacrifice, all right? You had the old sacrifices, the one sacrifice of Christ, all right? There's sufficiency in it. The sufficiency of his one sacrifice 
and there's sanctification in his one sacrifice. And I'm using the word out of verse 14 in that here. But we read these, okay, but just again, and, and I hate to just gloss over all of this, but the sufficiency. The old priests were always standing and ministering. They were never done. As one writer said, there were no chairs in the tabernacle. Of the various furniture pieces that were there, there were no chairs. Why? Because there was never time for them to sit down. They were never done. There was no end whatsoever in what they had to do. But what does it say of Christ? Verse 11, And every priest standeth daily, ministering often, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He did his work one time, did it once, and it's sufficient it's because it's so great what it was and so effective, it never has to be repeated. It can't be repeated. And there's nothing you can add to it. You know, you can't say, okay, yes, but let me, whatever. Because you can't add to what Christ has done. Think of the the offense to God when people have that attitude. I mean, what God has done in giving Christ and all that's involved in that, and then people try to rely on their own efforts to please God. That's, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it other than what an offense to God. But the sufficiency of his... He performed his ministry once, and he was done. Thus, he sat down. And notice, he sat down on the right hand of God. Why? Because of who he is. All right? And we, we saw that earlier in Hebrews referred to. And he's there until he comes back to earth to execute his kingdom here. Right? In um, verse 13, from henceforth, so in other words, from that throne, that's where he is now, right? From henceforth expecting, and the idea is there is he's waiting, all right, till his enemies be made his footstool, all right, Psalm 2 comes into the picture here, but also Psalm, it's kind of more of a direct quote from Psalm 110, uh, probably like verse 4, but that's the Psalm that, that says the Lord, David's the psalmist, but he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then down, I, I, that'd be verse 1 or 2. And then down in verse 4, I think it is where it mentions Melchizedek. All right, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But that's psalm, all right? Um, but the emphasis here is not on his coming back. It's on the fact that he's done what he did. It's done. It's, it's sufficient. It's completed. And it is completely effectual. There's nobody that can ever be left out of salvation based on what Christ has done. People leave themselves out because of lack of faith. But in other words, what Christ has done is sufficient for everybody, everything since Adam's first sin on. Totally, totally sufficient to please God. And then he's there waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. And then he says, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof, in other words, of that point, right? The Holy Ghost also is a witness to us for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them uh, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He's quoting directly from Jeremiah there, Jeremiah 31, and then the writer Hebrews adds this, now where remission of, of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There's no, there's no need for sin if there's forgiveness. There's no need for offering for sin if there's forgiveness. All right? So if God's been appeased, there's no need to keep trying to appease him. He's appeased. He's satisfied. He's, to use a word that's used in, in Romans, he's propitiated. He's totally satisfied with what Christ has done. Remember Isaiah 53 there. 
pleased, satisfied. Uh, and, but the interesting thing here is he's quoting that idea of forgiveness and total eternal forgiveness, right, from Jeremiah. Not from a New Testament passage, but from Jeremiah. Now, a lot of people, you can read that passage and not really stop and think about that, but God was saying that in that new covenant, there's going to be a new standing with me, a relationship. And no one's going to, it talks about in that passage, no one's going to have to say, learn of God for all will know me. It's for those that have a relationship to God is what the new covenant's about. All right. But it involves forgiveness of sins. That's the point that Hebrews writer is making here. That covenant involved God forgiving sins. And that is the basis for them to have that new and real relationship with him. Therefore, sanctified forever. Uh, verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. All right, the, the, the sanctification in that, the new covenant is effected upon those who are sanctified in Christ. Let me read this real quick and I got to stop. This is from William McDonald here. The surpassing value of his offering is seen in that he hath perfected forever, or in the ideas in perpetuity. It's ongoing, continual, all right? Continually there. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified here means all who have been set apart to God from this world, that is all true believers. They have been perfected in a twofold sense. First, they have a perfect standing before God. They stand before the Father in all the acceptability of His beloved Son. Second, they have a perfect conscience as far as the guilt and penalty of sins. The guilt and penalty of sins are concerned. They know that the price has been paid in full and that God will not demand another payment. That's part of the idea of conscience being perfected in, in this passage. Because once we come to God in faith, we understand that He forgives. We can rest in that forgiveness. We're not, again, trying to work. And if, if, we're, if we're constantly trying to work, do something to appease God for what we've done, we're not trusting Him. So involved in faith, saving faith, is the idea we understand God is satisfied through Christ. Now, it's only through Christ. It's not because of you. The only way that God looks at you favorably is in Christ. The only way that he looks at me, when I say you, I'm, I'm including me in that, okay? Uh, it's Christ. He, he is all in all. He is the one and only reason that you can be accepted before God. But that's a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. And I got to stop. Thank you, Lord, for just uh, what we've been able to see in Hebrews here regarding Christ and how He satisfied you. And Lord, I know I could never satisfy you myself. I thank you that in Christ I, I can be, I can stand perfected, sanctified forever. We thank you for that. And that's true for each and every one who's in Christ. Help us to to appreciate that and love you and serve you because we love you, not because we're trying to appease your wrath. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.